good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Man, excited to be here again. Um, just continue to be overwhelmed by what God's doing in this place. Um, humbled, grateful, and thankful um, for what God is doing. But uh, before we kind of hop into our message series, I wanted to encourage us um, to really think about what we're a part of, um, to really think about what God is doing in this place. It's not something that happens often, and it's something that we should be grateful for. This really is a church plant. <laughs> like, we are a church plant that is a couple weeks old. Um, and, and what happens inherently with church plants is, is usually they start with a very small amount of people, which means relationships are great, um, but impact is low because it takes time, right? It takes time to build momentum. It takes time to raise funds. It takes time to have a facility. And so relationships are great, um, but impact can, can be low as time goes on. But what we have the privilege of being a part of is a church plant with a facility and, and a lot of opportunity for impact. But what's going to naturally kind of be difficult and challenging is relationships. There's a lot of people in the room. Um, and so as we kind of just continue to be overwhelmed and thankful for what God's doing here as a church, I'd, I'd love to just pastorally encourage each of us to lean into what God is doing here, to lean into relationship with one another, to be intentional. That's why we've started with a series called My Part Matters, um, because really uh, the success of a church is built on how intentional the individual believers are as, as a part of that church. The church is you. The church is me. The church is us. And so how seriously we take the call um, to be a part of a healthy, vibrant expression of the church is going to be ultimately um, the leading factor for what happens as our church grows. So we're excited to continue this series called My Part Matters. The first week we talked about uh, it's important for each of us as individuals to be committed to core doctrine, devoted to prayer, submitted to the Holy Spirit, and intentional in community. And then last week, Kent did an incredible job of reminding us that each one of us has been called by God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been called, and our goal as believers is to remember that calling and live into it. This morning, we're actually going to pick up where Kent finished off in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles or your phones and you want to follow along with where we're headed, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Let me pray, and then we will get started. Father, we are grateful for yet another opportunity to gather together with other believers to just anticipate what you are going to do in this room. We need you to be present and active. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be moving in this room and speaking to each individual um, through every aspect of what happens this morning, through the fellowship and the lobby and the songs and the time of communion and the time of worship and this time we have to look at your word. Holy Spirit, just be present. Show up and do what only you can do um, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever seen one of these on a church stage before? Yeah, three weeks in and we're going to do the give. No, I'm just kidding. Giving campaign's not coming. Some of you might even be having PTSD from what you see here on the screen. Oftentimes, churches and nonprofits, they will use similar imagery to track kind of the fundraising of this large goal that they have in mind. And what usually happens is a slick, charismatic, visionary leader comes up on stage. He'll have a beautiful slide deck with blueprints of this incredible facility that is going to be built. It's going to change the world. Um, there'll be pictures of all of the baptisms that have happened over the past few years. You guys 
been there, experienced that before, right? And then if they're if they're really good, they will after they finish their large visionary cast, they'll walk off stage and they'll meet their eight-year-old daughter by the offering plate, and they'll tell a story about how she's going to give up her allowance for the rest of the year to build this fund up for the church, right? Then every few weeks for the next couple of years, they will come up and they will give you an update on what is happening with this fundraising project. And they'll tell you all of the ways that you could be more sacrificial to give more money so that things get better around the church. Don't have Starbucks this week. Give that $14.76 to the church and we will meet our goal sooner. I'm being partly rude, but <laughs> we've had this experience before, a lot of us, right? Um, and don't worry, that's, that's not what's going to happen this morning. I'm not that charismatic, nor do I have an eight-year-old um, with an allowance to give. <laughs> but I share this story because I think it's a really good imagery of what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4. See, I think Paul is this great visionary apostle for the church, and he's casting this really clear, beautiful vision of what a healthy and vibrant expression of the church looks like. And Kent kind of built this for us last week. He said, if the church is going to be healthy and vibrant, and and if we're going to get to the goal that we all ultimately want, which is to become more like Jesus as individuals and as a church, we've got to have apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers doing the work to equip the saints um, for the work of the ministry. And then the saints, we have to take seriously our role, our calling to live into that. And as we all do that together, we'll kind of accomplish this goal. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. So he's created this really beautiful imagery of a unified church. Some of you have good eyes and you'll be able to see this and some of you won't. Just take my word for it, right? So Paul has kind of laid out this beautiful vision casting of what a unified church looks like. It looks like the leaders taking seriously their call to equip the saints, and the saints taking that seriously to be obedient to the church and live into it. And ultimately, the goal is that we all become like Jesus. So last week, Paul kind of lays out this vision, and I think this week what he's going to say is he's going to tell us how we can participate in that process, how we can make investments in this vision for a unified church. I would put it this way. I would say that individual spiritual maturity leads to corporate church unity. So last week, Paul cast his vision for a unified church, and this week he's going to say that if we're going to get there, if we're going to make it there, if we're going to finish this goal of being a unified church, it's built on each one of us growing in spiritual maturity. Let's kind of read this in the text a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll kind of start where Kent ended last week. Let's pick up in verse 11. It says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So Paul's saying here that if you want to get to this place where we have a unified church, it's built on individuals becoming spiritually mature. 
And if individuals are going to become spiritually mature, they have to focus their eyes and their behavior, their minds and their hearts on Jesus. Our goal as individuals is to become more like Jesus. And as we as individuals become more like Jesus, we come closer together in relationship with one another. And not only do individuals become more like Jesus, but ultimately the church becomes more like Jesus. And we become this expression of his hands and feet into our community and the world. This is the vision that Paul is laying out. And it doesn't help if there's a kind of a, a bunch of random individual believers all in this group and you guys are all becoming like Jesus on your own, but we're not becoming like Jesus together. As we become like Jesus on our own, we should be expressing the gifts that God has given us as we each express our unique gifts in unity with one another. The church, not only do individuals become more like Jesus, but the church becomes more like Jesus. So Paul is saying here that if we're going to have a unified church that looks like Jesus, it's built on individuals becoming spiritually mature. But what happens, I'm afraid, is we get a bad definition. We, we all have different definitions of what individual spiritual maturity looks like. Um, and, and if we're going to follow this analogy, it would be like the, the elders checking the offering plate after they cast this big vision. Right, they've got they got the thermometer on stage, and some of you dropped in like some Canadian coins or maybe some some Doge coin vouchers, some Bitcoin. Right, and the elders are like, "This is not we we this is not what we want it. We want it cash, like American currency." Right. So what happens is, if all of us have a different definition of what spiritual maturity looks like, then we might think that we're headed towards this goal, but in reality, we're not making much progress at all. So let's make sure that we're on the same page about what spiritual maturity looks like. See, I think in Western culture and in the American church, uh, we have kind of closely knit together spiritual maturity or maturity as a whole with the idea of intellectual understanding. And so the more you fill your head with knowledge, the more mature you are. But all of us have been around really smart people who aren't that mature. Right? Like, you can have a lot of information in your head and still not be mature. Most Western church discipleship programs are built on reading books, gaining more knowledge, but rarely are disciples held accountable to act like Jesus. It's like if you know more information about Jesus, you're spiritually mature, even if you're not living that out in your life. I've stolen this illustration before from Francis Chan. He gives this illustration where he hypothetically, he tells his daughter to go clean her room. And then a couple hours later, he shows up to her room and her room is a mess, right? She's sitting in her room with a bunch of friends. And he says, sweetheart, what's going on? I thought I told you to clean your room. And she said, yeah, dad, I heard that command. And so I gathered my friends together in my room. And we actually spent a lot of time thinking and praying about what it would look like if I were to clean my room. Um, Susan wrote a song about what it would look like for us to clean our room. And Jack here in a minute, he's going to come up and he's going to give a 30-minute speech on how awesome it would be if we were to clean our room. Actually, we, we actually memorized your command in the Greek. Aren't you proud of us? Right? Like, this happens to us. We, we get this idea that spiritual maturity is built on us having more information about God without actually living out the thing that he's called us to. And I think... Part of the reason that unified churches aren't built in America is because we're all defining individual maturity 
differently. I think far too many Christians think that memorizing their preferred systematic theology and being able to debate it with other Christians makes them mature. But Paul seems to be saying here and elsewhere that spiritual maturity is actually about obedience to Jesus. Romans 8.29, one of those verses that really mature Christians love to use to build their systematic theology and tear other brothers and sisters down. We, we, we won't deal with that today, but what does it say? It says believers are predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Individual spiritual maturity means you and I looking more and more like Jesus every single day. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Kent quoted this last week. Our name is built on it. Christians are created in Christ Jesus for what? To get a good systematic theological understanding of how everything works? No. No. Four good works that Christ prepared in advance for you to do. I've said this before. I'll probably say it a lot. Um, I think that the American church, many believers in the American church are educated far beyond our obedience. And instead of, instead of being challenged and held accountable to obedience in Jesus, it's a lot easier for us to just go to another seminar or take another class or listen to another sermon and feel convicted about the things that we should be doing singing a song about the things that we would like to do rather than just doing it. So, if we're going to accomplish unity, it's going to be built on us actually becoming more like Jesus day in and day out. Not just filling our head with more information, but being like Him, spending time with Him. What Paul's going to do here in this next paragraph is he's going to point out some some inconsistencies in spiritual maturity. He's going to check the offering plate and see that some of us are putting in Bitcoin when we, what we need is actually cash. Does that make sense? So look, at, look with me in verse 14. It says, if we're, if we're doing this thing, if we're becoming more and more like Jesus as individuals, then our church will become more and more unified and the church will look more and more like Jesus. He says, then we will no longer be immature. So we'll be mature. We won't be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try and trick us with lies so clever that they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. We will become more and more like Jesus. And what's the result? Growing in every way, more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. This is our goal. Our goal as individuals is to become more like Jesus. As we as individuals become more like Jesus, our church will look more like Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together. Unity and diversity. As each part does its own special work. As each of us look to Jesus and set our eyes on Jesus and become like Him in our own unique culture and context. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Do we see this picture of a unified church that looks like Jesus that's built on individuals who are becoming more and more like Jesus? Paul moves from a clear picture of what spiritual maturity looks like to warn us about ultimately what can distract us from becoming uh, mature. And he seems to say... That the main distraction, and this is where some of you that are really good biblical scholars are like, okay, Ryan, it seems like your outline's about to fall apart here. Um, <laughs> seems to say that the main distraction for spiritual maturity is false teaching. 
So you would think, okay, Ryan, you just gave a little bit of a rant about how we don't need to fill our heads with more information. But now Paul is saying that immature believers, they become immature because they're distracted by false teaching. So the solution should be, should be study more, learn more, fill your head with more knowledge, right? Well, this, this is a kind of a cliche illustration that all of us have heard before, but we've heard the illustration that bank tellers don't get trained on counterfeits by studying the counterfeits, Right? How do, they, how do they know the counterfeit? They know the counterfeit because they spend all of their time with the real thing. They study the real thing. They get to know the real thing. They have proximity to the real thing. Because here's the deal. There's always going to be different counterfeit strategies. People are creative at stealing and lying and killing and destroying. It's kind of the enemy's thing. So there's always going to be different and new false teachings. We don't, we don't become spiritually mature by preparing ourselves for every single false teaching. We become spiritually mature by setting our eyes on Jesus, spending time with Jesus, getting to know Jesus. As we get to know Jesus, these false teachings that kind of look like truth, we'll know it. We'll, we'll know it. We'll understand it. So, understanding fakes is all about proximity to the real thing. The more you spend time getting to know and obey Jesus, the more clearly you will be able to spot false teaching that resembles truth. So what I want to do next is I want to look at kind of two distortions, two false teachings that I believe really get us off track. And there's these manifest themselves differently in every culture and in every season of the church and life. But these two, in my mind, um, they exist all throughout church history, and they continue to exist to this day. First is religion. Um, and I would say that religion, ultimately, however you want to boil it down, it could be boiled down to this. Religion is truth without love. Truth without love. This is a twisting of Jesus. This is a twisting of the commands and the teachings of Jesus. Truth without love. We, we so desperately want to get theology right. We so desperately want to, want to have this thing set up properly. We don't want to have false teaching. And so we, we get so narrowly focused on truth that we forget to love God and love one another, which is kind of the primary commands of Christianity. But, but it's, out of, it's often out of this good desire. Like we want to get it right. But we try so hard to get it right that we sometimes get it wrong. Jesus addressed this with the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. He says, you look great on the outside. It looks like you get it. Everyone around you thinks you're awesome at this religion thing, thinks you're awesome at this Jesus thing, but I know your heart. I know what's actually going on. You might be good at pretending like you're good at this thing, but in reality, you're treating people poorly. You're not taking care of the least of these. If we, to, if we were to follow this Francis Chan illustration along throughout our talk today, this would be the daughter that runs to the room and grabs all of the mess in her room and shoves it under the bed and sticks it in the closet. Done. I did the thing that dad told me to do. But dads are smart, right? <laughs> like, you guys know to check under the bed and to look in the closet. And the same thing is true of God. God knows our hearts. And so we, out of this desire to be obedient, and also sometimes this desire to be obedient on our own terms, Define truth, define religion in a way that we can easily accomplish it. It's easy to stick everything under the bed and into the closet. It's easy to do that. And so oftentimes we're like, we want to obey God, but also obeying God is hard. 
And so we redefine obedience to God in this, like, I'll just do it really quick. I'll stick all these things here. Everybody will think that I'm good at it. But God knows your heart. And what happens here is if we've got a church full of people that are doing that, we look good at being spiritually mature on the outside. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do something that makes you mad. I'm going to step on your toes. You're going to step on my toes. And because we're not actually like Jesus, when conflict happens, we'll show our true colors. And a church like that is never going to be unified. Because a church like that's never going to act like Jesus when things get tough. Religious people are really good at acting like Jesus when things are great. When things get tough, what's true in our hearts comes out. Do we see how this sounds like truth? But it's a distortion of truth. Oftentimes people, out of a good heart, want to obey God. But they take the shortcut. This is actually what happened to the church at Ephesus. Um, Paul writes this beautiful vision casting for a unified church, what a unified church looks like, and he warns them, if you're going to be unified, if you're going to be like Jesus, you can't buy into false teaching. And so they focus all of their attention. They set all of their minds and their hearts and their energy to not buying into false teaching. And this is what happened. John writes this to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. This is actually Jesus to the church. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. It's a pretty good thing, right? Do we see how the, the, the church, they heard Paul's warning and they nailed it. They now, they can point out false teachers from a mile away. But what happens? In this, he says, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. See how they bought this subtle lie of the truth without love? They were so good at pointing out false doctrine. But they forgot to love God and love one another. They, out of their desire to be able to point out false teachers, they became themselves false teachers. They started to teach this lesson that it's all about truth. And they got it wrong. And Jesus comes to them and says, you're, you're missing the mark. And if you don't fix it, I'm going to take the opportunity for you to be a visible expression of the church to your city away from you. I'll give it to somebody else. Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He doesn't have to use you and me. He get, we get to be a part of it. But we've got to get this balance of truth and love right. Truth without love is a false teaching that leads to spiritual immaturity. It's a bunch of people that look mature that actually aren't. Kent quoted this passage last week, 1 Corinthians 13. If we possess all knowledge, if we have all the information in the world, but we don't love one another, we don't love God, we don't love one another, we're missing the point. Spiritual maturity isn't measured by how good you are at pointing out how wrong other people are. It's just not. But for those of you that like are, are academics, you care about theology, I know that this has been a hard rant. But I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm an equal opportunity offender. So, let's transition to the other type of false teaching that tends to creep into the church and get us off track. It sounds like truth, but it's a distortion. 
If spiritual maturity isn't measured by how good you are at pointing out how other people are wrong, it also doesn't mean that you get to redefine truth to make everyone feel better. The second false teaching, I'm using common language, but it happens all throughout the church. It'll continue to happen. I'm calling it postmodernism for now, but it's love without truth. False teachers, they come from outside of the church, and slowly over time it, it drips in because individual believers... We're not setting our eyes on Jesus. Rather, we're setting our eyes on teachers that make us feel good, that tell us the things that we want to hear. And so instead of becoming more like Jesus, we buy into this teaching that Jesus is all about love without truth. We've heard this phrase slip into the church, live your truth. It's a false teaching. It goes kind of like this. God loves you, and he wants you to be happy. And the only way that you will be happy is if you live your truth truth. Do we hear hear a subtle lie in there? God loves you. Is that true? True. God wants you to be happy. This is abundant life that God has created for all of his followers of Jesus. Happiness is kind kind of a misstep that we've taken there, but does God want you to have an abundant life? Yes. The only way that you will have that abundant life is if you live your truth. No, right? That's the subtle lie. It's the same lie that the enemy used in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Did he really say you couldn't eat of this tree? We begin to redefine truth based on our own desires and the desires of others. If we go back to the Francis Chan illustration, the dad comes in, the room's a mess, daughter's sitting there, and he says, what's going on? Your room's a mess. She says, what really is clean anyway? Who, who gets to define what clean means? Who made you the authority of what clean means? This room feels clean to me. It looks clean to me. I think this room is clean. And I, again, I'm, I'm being hard on both groups of people because I've found myself in both categories all of the time. And oftentimes, I know my heart, sometimes it's out of a really bad evil temptation, but oftentimes I really just want people to experience the love of God. God loves you so much that he sent his son, his one and only son, to die in your place for your sins. I want people who are outside of that to understand how deep the love of the Father is, but oftentimes because I'm afraid of the whole truth thing and how they're going to take it, I water it down. This is where the, the, the Jewish people found themselves when Jesus came. And you see the crowds kind of like all coming to Jesus. And I think the reason the crowd came to Jesus is there was a vacuum in leadership. They were being pulled by Rome in one way. They were being pulled by the Jewish kings in another way. And they they had no clue what real truth actually looked like. And Jesus looked at them with compassion. And he said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that's how Jesus looks at people that are buying into this false teaching that Love without truth. He looks at us and says, You're like a, a sheep without a shepherd. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. Let me direct you in the way that things should go. So, what happens to a church that's filled with religious people is we step on each other's toes, we get mad, conflict happens because we're not actually spiritually mature. What happens to a church of people that are building their life on this false teaching? I think we actually have a picture of the worst-case scenario in 1 Corinthians. A church that focuses all about love without truth. Eventually, somebody comes to the communion table bragging about how they're sleeping with their mother-in-law. 
when truth gets so watered down and the love of God is so pushed to this idea, what happens is we start to brag about our sin. We, we start to celebrate the stuff that God doesn't love in us. He's trying to round that stuff out. He's trying to call us to obedience to Jesus. And instead, we're so focused on the love thing that we start to brag about sin. Spiritual maturity is defined by obedience to Jesus, not the ability to redefine truth in a way that fits your agenda. Love with no truth might produce a shallow harmony, but it will never produce this real, genuine unity that Paul has in mind for the church. See, Jesus, Jesus is the the perfect balance of truth and love. And if we're going to get this right, if we're going to be individuals that are spiritually mature, we have to set our eyes on Jesus and we have to be a, become a people that, as Paul says in verse 15, speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. If we're going to get this right, if we're going to be a unified church, we've got to get spiritual maturity right. If we're going to get spiritual maturity right, we have to get this balance of truth and love, right? And those of us, those of us that have been following Jesus for any time at all, this is the most attractive thing about Jesus. This is abundant life, like coming to the Author and Creator of all things and having Him call us out on the things that aren't going to lead us to life, but doing it in such a way that is so loving and so gracious, like a shepherd leading his sheep down the right path. This is what we long for. But we mess this balance up all the time. I love what Hebrews chapter 12 says. It says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the perfect balance of truth and love. And as each one of us as individuals set our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, he is the author of it all. It all happened because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now is seated at the place of honor. The cross is the perfect balance of truth and love. So what's the result? What happens if we do this well? Verse 16, if every individual in this church takes seriously the command to look at Jesus, to set your eyes on Jesus, to understand this balance of truth and love, to not buy into false teaching, but to set your eyes on Jesus, He, Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Individual maturity will lead to church unity. If we become more like Jesus, as individuals, we will become more like Jesus as a church. This is what Jesus meant when he talked to his disciples right before he went to the cross and he said that the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. We've got to get this right. And as we get this right, people from the outside will say, whoa, you guys have something. It's not truth without love. It's not fake 
throwing dirty clothes under the bed and in the closet. Like, you guys are real, authentic. You're honest about the ways you struggle, but you're setting your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And it's also not this, like, everybody can do whatever they want kind of thing. Like, there's, there's accountability and truth. This is what the world needs from us. It needs individual believers setting their eyes on Jesus, understanding the perfect balance of truth and love. And as we grow in this, church unity will be the result. A couple of weeks ago, I gave my first message, and Barrett came up to me afterwards, and she said that Dave Winsett, when, they were, when Barrett and Jason were getting married, um, drew this little picture here of this triangle. And um, this triangle kind of has the two, the husband and wife at the bottom of the triangle. And Dave said, if you want to be a unified couple, what we tend to think needs to happen is we need to look to one another. We need to focus on what are the needs of our spouse. And as we focus on the needs of our spouse, we'll become more and more unified. But in reality, in a good, healthy Christian relationship, what needs to happen is we need to focus our eyes on Jesus. And as we focus our eyes on Jesus, we'll get closer and closer together. And Barrett said, you know, I feel like this is just a perfect kind of illustration for this My Part Matter series. And I thought about it for a week or two, and I was like, man, it really is. Except I think this is what the church looks like. Next slide. Maybe. There. Because here's what happens. Like, in marriage, like, you're in this long-term relationship uh, prior to your marriage where you're working really hard to get on the same level playing field. So you're starting from those bases of the triangles. But in the church, the church is supposed to be the most diverse uh, organization ever. Like, we are filled with Jews, Greeks, um, slave, free, male, female. Like, we are, like, as diverse as it comes. And so we're starting from all different directions. This this looks like it could be a mess, right? Like, people that have all different backgrounds, all different political ideologies that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. This looks like it should be and could be a mess. And sometimes it is. But, if we put Jesus at the center, if we focus our eyes on Him, we will slowly but surely over time come together. We will be knit together, fit together in our diversity, each understanding our own gifting and becoming more and more like Jesus as individuals. We will become more and more like Jesus as a church. But here's what happens. You see there, there's a couple of arrows that are like banging into each other. <laughs> Because what happens is sometimes we think we have our eyes on Jesus and when in reality we have our eyes on our own kind of desires. And, and what happens with the church that's modeled like this is because sometimes we'll get a little bit off track, we'll, we'll kind of drift, we'll end up running into somebody. And when we run into somebody, if our focus is Jesus, then we can refocus on Jesus. We can have meaningful conversations that are built on love and truth. We can say, hey, I don't understand how this thing that you're doing is actually making you become more like Jesus or making our church more like Jesus. You can have these meaningful conversations. Kent talked about this a little bit last week. I, I love the phrase, and I'll encourage our church to, 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 to think this way moving forward. Believe the best. When you run into somebody... And you think that you're headed towards Jesus and they think that they're headed towards Jesus, first and foremost, step back and believe the best about that brother and sister in Christ. Like, just assume that maybe it's possible that you're wrong and they're right. 
and then go to them in relationship and ask this question. Help me understand. Help me understand how this behavior, how this decision, how this thing that you're doing is you focusing on Jesus. And I think if we do that in, in truth and love, in relationship with one another, I think what will happen is, is oftentimes we'll get redirected. We'll think our eyes were on Jesus when in reality we were distracted. And based on that conversation, we'll realize that we need to recenter ourselves, refocus ourselves. Or sometimes you're going to be right and they're going to be wrong. And out of grace and love, we both get our eyes refocused on Jesus together. Let's be a church that believes the best and that asks clarifying questions. That builds our maturity on this perfect balance of truth and love. So some final application questions before we transition to a time of communion. If you didn't grab communion, um, it might be awkward for you to stand up and go back now, but I don't think it's awkward, so I say just go do it. Um, here's a couple application questions. Which false teaching do you have the propensity to lean towards? Which, which of those two false teachings do you find yourself living in the most? Love without truth or truth without love? Is it possible? Is it possible that out of a reverence for God's word, you have become a person who cares more about truth but doesn't have much love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Just sit with that, you and the Holy Spirit today and this week. Or is it possible that out of a deep love for all of God's image bearers, you have begun to redefine truth in your own image and the image of others and you're unwilling to hold people accountable to the truth that God will ultimately one day hold them accountable for. Sit with that. Which one of these is, is your natural propensity? And the, the solution to this is to fix your eyes on Jesus who perfectly balances truth and love. Let's be a people that daily fix our eyes on Jesus who demonstrated the perfect balance of grace and truth by going to the cross to take on the punishment that you and I deserve. May we be a church that experiences an otherworldly type of unity because as individuals, we've experienced the love and truth of Jesus and we are becoming more like him daily. We're going to finish our time together by taking communion. Um, and we do this a lot around here and we're going to continue to do it a lot. I don't know if it'll be every week, but we're going to do it a lot. And the reason that we do it a lot is because no matter how bad my sermon is or no matter how messed up the songs might get, like, this is why we're here. And, and this is the perfect visible representation of Jesus' truth and love. So if you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, in a minute we're going to take communion. And what I want you to think about as you do that is that communion is this visible expression of truth and love that leads to unity. Truth. Your sin demands punishment. My sin demands punishment. We have offended a holy God. But love, God sent His one and only Son to take that punishment on our behalf. His body was broken and His blood was shed to pay the punishment for our sin so that one day we'll all gather around a table the wedding feast of the Lamb with Jesus at the head, and we will celebrate Him for all eternity, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Truth and love leads to unity when it's all centralized on 
Jesus. So if you're a believer here in a second, we'll take communion. If you're here and you're not really sure where you're at with Jesus, one, we're so glad that you're here. This is a great place to explore the teachings of Jesus, to consider the claims of Jesus. And the thing that we love the most about Jesus as believers is that he gets this right. And we think that it leads to an abundant life, a full and satisfied life. And we want you to experience that. So I'm going to ask you not to take communion because this is for those of us that have submitted our lives to his lordship. But what I will ask you to do is this week, go home and read the Gospel of John and look for this balance. Look for Jesus being both loving and truthful, holding people accountable to things that are ultimately going to lead to their destruction, but then providing a way for them to come back. And, and whoever you came with today, at, like, ask them. Talk to them. Have a conversation with them. If you came by yourself, if you just found us on the Internet or saw a new sign outside or whatever, like, send us an email. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what this looks like. So, believers, let's take the body of Christ broken for us. Must drink the blood of Christ shed for us. Father, we thank you that you have had a perfect blueprint for a healthy and vibrant expression of your community from the foundations of the earth, and you've given it to us through different scriptures. And God, today I pray that we've seen that, that we understand that church unity is built on spiritual maturity, and that spiritual maturity is built on looking at Jesus and becoming more like Him day in and day out, and then doing that in community with one another. God, I pray that we would be a church that does that, that daily becomes more like you as individuals and as a community, so that the world can see the abundant life that you have for all of us if we would just submit ourselves to you. God, I thank you for Jesus. Susan, I pray. Amen.